Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. There is grandeur in this view of life. Welcome to Evolution Talk with Rick Coast, an introduction to the oldest story ever told. November 24th, 1859 may not mean a whole lot to you today, but to Charles Darwin and pretty much everyone who was alive at the time, it meant a great deal. Perhaps not on that very day. Product distribution wasn't anything like it is now. It might take weeks for something produced in England to reach America. And it's probably true to say that the product in question made a splash around the world long before anyone had a chance to buy it. Even back then, word traveled fast. If you haven't guessed, the product I'm talking about is a book. Not just any book either. The title of the book says it all. On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. If you think that's a mouthful, it was, even by the standards back then. Thirteen years after it first began to appear in Holmes, the sixth edition, published in 1872, had its title shortened to one you might be a little bit more familiar with, if not in content, at least in name. It was retitled On the Origin of Species. You might know of the author as well, even if we haven't been talking about him for the last three episodes. His name, of course, is, or was, Charles Darwin. And that book just happens to be the focus of today's Evolution Talk. We'll begin our story not in 1859, but a few years prior to that, four to be exact. The year we are concerned with at the moment is 1855. Now, if you've been with me for the last three episodes, you might remember that Charles Darwin was busy studying the effects of artificial selection on pigeons, as well as the survival capabilities of seeds in seawater. It might not sound like fun stuff to you and I, especially the, the whole seeds and seawater bit, but what Charles was trying to do was to work out a method, a natural method, for the transmutation of one species into another one over great periods of time. He might be able to affect changes in pigeons by selecting for traits he wanted to see dominate in the birds he bred, but that was one thing. What he was driving at, or hoping to explain, was how nature did the same thing over vast periods of time without having a purpose or an end goal. He had no doubt that this was the case, but what was troubling him was exactly how this all worked. He had no knowledge of genetics at the time. Nobody did. Genetics wasn't even a word. The word wouldn't appear until 1905, and it was an English biologist by the name of William Bateson who would first utter it. Not while working to validate Darwin's theories, that was always in the back of every biologist's mind, 
but the work of another man, German scientist and friar Gregor Mendel. Mendel is now known as the father of modern genetics and the study or the science of heredity, but we're getting way ahead of ourselves. All you need to know for the sake of this discussion is that the world hasn't been or hadn't been yet introduced to the laws of genetics. And it was a thorn in Darwin's side, for he knew that something of the sort had to be at play here. He just didn't know what it was or how to find it. He just knew it was there working in the background and also that it couldn't be magic. So he worked feverishly on his theory and continued to add to the pages that filled his notebooks. He might not have the mechanism behind heredity, but he had a theory, a strong one, for how this mysterious mechanism responded to the world around it. That response was a simple one, at least simple to some, and not so simple for the less fortunate. Survival. What Darwin knew was that the more offspring an organism produced, the more chances that organism species had of surviving. Reproduction introduced modifications. No two organisms are exactly alike, especially when it comes to offspring. They might resemble their parents, but they are not exact duplicates. If they were exact duplicates, it would pretty much serve as a death sentence for that particular species. And why? Well, because with every modification or difference comes the possibility that that modification might result in a benefit to the organism's survival. If the replication process always resulted in duplicates, the chances that all organisms would suffer the same fate or the same deficiency is a strong one. All bets would be off. In a world of white mice, a black mouse will have a better chance to avoid detection by predators at night. And there's also a strong chance that that black mouse will produce more offspring than its fellow white mice due to the simple fact that it'll live longer. If that black mouse, all it has to uh, mate with are white mice, that's okay because the chances that it will pass on to its offspring the genes that call for black hair are very good and in time there'll be plenty of black mice running around where there was before none at all. And all it took was one small modification of a gene that caused it to produce hair with a black pigment instead of no pigment at all. Darwin even had a name for his theory. He called it natural selection. It was nature that selected which traits would provide a benefit to its possessor. Darwin shared his ideas with his friends, uh, most notably the geologist Charles Lyell, who we were introduced to in an earlier episode. And one day in 1855, a paper came to Lyle's attention. Instead of passing over it, as he most likely did with many papers, for he was an, an extremely busy and popular man, it was the title of the paper that caused him to pause. It was, or the title of the paper was, On the Law Which Has Regulated the Introduction of a New Species. And it was published in the September 1855 edition of Annals and Magazine of Natural History. The paper's author was a man unknown to Charles Lyell at the time. The man's name was Alfred Wallace Russell. Wallace was a young English naturalist and explorer, and he was then working in Borneo. He was himself heavily influenced by the book written by Robert Chambers, which advocated the idea that everything evolved, including the universe, the planets, and its abundance of life, or the abundance of life that we see around us. 
Although Chambers' book was controversial and provided no real explanation for how the whole thing worked, Wallace saw it differently. If the organisms of a species were separated, there was a chance that they might evolve in different directions. Like Darwin, Wallace didn't know what the mechanism for change was, but it was there, buried in the act of creation. Now, Lyle, who had before been skeptical of Darwin's ideas, friend or not, was impressed enough with Wallace's work to suggest that Charles should read it as it seemed to mirror Charles's own work. What Lyle was afraid of was that Wallace's work might trump Darwin's own theories for the boy was already publishing his ideas as evidenced in the article. Strangely enough, Darwin didn't appear too concerned at the time. To him, he'd been working on his theory since stepping off of the Beagle two decades earlier. So content that he was onto something himself, Darwin continued to add to his ideas that it was natural selection that accounted for the many species and the many forms of life around us. He just wanted definitive proof. And then three years later, everything changed. In the time since he had first published his thoughts in 1855, Wallace had also read Malthus's book, An Essay on the Principle of Population, just as Darwin had. Wallace now had the force that drove the change around us, natural selection. His own work and observations confirmed its validity. Wallace had met Darwin years before, and he respected his opinions. So, after putting all of his thoughts into a paper called On the Tendency of Varieties to Depart Indefinitely from Original Type, they really liked long titles back then, he then sent this essay off to Charles to read. Wallace's hopes were that if Darwin found the ideas contained within it valid, then perhaps he might help Wallace in publishing it. Darwin read Wallace's essay on June 18, 1858, and I'm sure he practically fell out of his chair. Wallace's ideas mirrored his own. Not only that, but some of the terms that Wallace used could have served as the chapter headings of his own book, the one that he was perpetually in the progress or process of writing. Charles Darwin, it can be said and it should be said, was an extremely honorable man. He knew that the right thing to do was to help the young man, young Wallace, publish his essay, even if it meant that his own work, while being decades old and predating that of Wallace, might be pushed aside. So he showed Wallace's essay to Lyle and another trusted friend and botanist, Joseph Hooker. To Lyle's credit, he didn't say to Charles, I told you so. Instead, he urged Darwin to present Wallace's paper, as well as one of Darwin's own, at the next meeting of the Linnean Society. The Linnean Society was the world's oldest society on natural history, and it still exists today. Two weeks later, on July 1st, 1858, Darwin stood in front of the society to present both papers and to have them both prepared for publication. If Charles can be said to be an honorable man, Wallace was his equal. Wallace was extremely pleased and honored by the support he received from Charles and obviously the presentation of his work alongside Darwin's own. He also understood and supported the fact that Charles had been working on the same idea for over two decades up to that point. The massive amounts of evidence that Darwin had collected to support the theory of evolution of natural selection dwarfed his own. Following the presentation of the papers, Charles gathered together all of his notes, all of his sketches and his ideas to produce and publish on November 24th, 
1859 on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races and the struggle for life. To say that that book made a splash would be an understatement. It changed the world. It has sometimes been said that the success of the origin proved that the subject was in the air or that men's minds were prepared for it. I do not think that this is strictly true, for I occasionally sounded not a few naturalists and never happened to come across a single one who seemed to doubt about the permanence of species. Darwin's masterpiece was both celebrated and condemned. Chief among his detractors were those who held to the belief that the world and all of the creatures on it was created in the way set forth in Genesis. That being in six days it was created, and from that time only 6,000 years had passed, not the billions of years Darwin required for his theory to hold true, and certainly not in the way that he said, to suggest that man descended from apes, which is really not what he suggested at all, was considered by some, or, or many, preposterous. On June 30th, 1860, a heated discussion, which some call a debate, took place at Oxford University, and that debate is still referred to today. The debate happened at a meeting of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, and it was presided over by Darwin's former mentor, John Henslow. Also present at the, the meeting was Samuel Wilberforce, then Bishop of Oxford, and he stood up against the English biologist Thomas Huxley. Wilberforce asked, and famously, if Huxley claimed his descent from a monkey from his mother's side or from his father's side. Now, whether this was actually what the bishop said, no one will really ever know, but Huxley's reported reply was equally worth repeating. I would not be ashamed to have a monkey for an ancestor, but I would be ashamed to be connected with a man who used his great gifts to obscure the truth. Just as memorable was the presence and reaction of Darwin's old cabin mate and captain of the Beagle, Robert Fitzroy. Being a deeply religious man, imagine Fitzroy's shock when he discovered or was told by somebody that his voyage with Darwin marked the birth of Darwin's great idea. During the proceedings, Fitzroy's dismay got the better of him and it's said that he lifted his Bible over his head and implored those present to believe God rather than man. Now, if only there had been recording devices back then. If you visit Oxford today, you'll find a stone monument marking the event outside of the Museum of Natural History. And Darwin's opposition didn't only come from his religious peers, but also from some of his professional ones. Surprising even to himself was the reaction of biologist Richard Owen, who at first Darwin looked to for support. Owen wrote a review of Darwin's book where he called the idea that man originated from apes an absurd one. He then added, as if to add salt to the wound, that it was an abuse of science. Needless to say, he and Darwin had little to say to one another after that. And not to be deterred, Darwin continued his work. Now that his ideas and his theory was, were out there, and pleased that the world didn't come to an end with the publication of his book, Darwin turned his attention to the very subject that vexed many who had read it, that being the descent of man. When I found that many naturalists fully accepted the doctrine of the evolution of species, 
it seemed to me advisable to work up such notes as I possessed and to publish a special treatise on the origin of man. Darwin's follow-up to On the Origin of Species was published in 1871, and it was titled appropriately enough, The Descent of Man. And in the book, he laid out his notion that man's ancestors journeyed out of Africa to populate the world. Now, because of the abundance of primate species in the dark continent, such as uh, gorillas and chimpanzees, it only made sense to Darwin, and it continues to be a widely held belief today. One must not forget, too, that all of this was worked out by Darwin well before the discovery of the fossilized remains of Neanderthals and other extinct forms of early man-like creatures. Never to be one to sit back and relax. Darwin continued to release books and to correspond with his admirers and peers. And on Christmas Day, 1881, his health caught up to him and it decided it was time for him to finally lay his quill down. He complained of chest pains to his wife Emma, pains that were really never to go away. And on April 18, 1882, Charles Darwin suffered a severe heart attack and died the very next day. Charles Darwin was laid to rest at Westminster Abbey, where he is hopefully having an eternal conversation with Sir Isaac Newton, who is only resting a few feet away. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Evolution Talk. I'm Rick Coast, and you can find show notes and source material and also ways to support the show at evolutiontalk.com. I'd love to hear from you. I hope your week is going well. And until next time, please take care of yourself. Evolution Talk is a Rick Coast production.